Sunday morning Bible class, at least in one of the adult options. We've been studying through the book of Job, and I mentioned in that class at some point, I'll a few lessons on the book of Job separate from the Bible class, simply because there are 42 chapters in the book, and we've got 13 or so weeks, and so we won't be able to get through everything. And so tonight is one of those lessons that we'll look at tonight based on the book of Job. Every time the Bible touches on Job, it speaks of him in glowing terms. He's mentioned twice in Ezekiel chapter 14, and God essentially says if these three men were there in the days of Ezekiel, Noah, Daniel, and Job, they would only be able to save their families. But that was God's way of saying that Job was a stand-up and stand-out character in biblical history. When you get to the New Testament, James is trying to encourage people to be faithful and to stick with their faith. And in James chapter 5, you have heard of the patience of Job, and you've seen the end of our He is very patient and merciful. Every time the Bible speaks about Job, it speaks about him in glowing and faithful terms. There's no other book in the Old Testament quite like the book of Job. In fact, there's no book in all the Bible like the book of Job. The book of Job begins this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, an upright man who feared God and shunned evil. He was prosperous as he had many camels and many sheep. 500 oxen, 500 livestock. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was a wealthy and prosperous man with many servants. And when you read the first five verses in Job chapter one, all's right with Job's life. And then one day Satan comes into the presence of God. You remember and he says, where have you been from traveling up and down, going throughout the earth? And God says, if you consider my servant Job, there's nobody like him in all the earth. An upright man, one that fears God and turns away from evil. And in a moment, Job's entire life has changed. Children are killed. His property is ruined in everything. And then God comes back to Satan and said, see, I told you, Job is faithful. And he says, yes, skin for skin, a man will give anything for his life. And so round two begins and Job's skin is infected with these boils and his suffering intensifies. His wife has some things to say about him and he begins to suffer. But even still, he retains his integrity. There's nobody else like Job in all of the Bible. He has three friends that initially come to comfort him. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. Job chapter two, eleven through 13 says they saw Job from a long distance and they came for that purpose. They made an appointment to come and Job and they show up. And that's exactly what they do, at least for seven days. They cried. The text actually says they lifted up their voices and wept. These weren't quiet trickles that ran down their cheeks. They hollered and screamed with Job as they saw him and they couldn't recognize him because things were just that bad. But after the seven days, they start in on Job. They say he sins secretly. His righteousness is a farce and he deserves exactly what he's getting. But Job punches back. He curses the day of his death. In chapter three, he retains his integrity and tells his friends in chapter 16, verses one and two. You guys are miserable comforters. And he begs God for an appointment in chapter 23, one through five, that if he could just present his case, he would pass with flying colors and that he would show that he doesn't deserve what he's getting. And so for 30 plus chapters. They go back and forth, Job and the friends. And then after a brief speech from a young man named Elihu in Job chapter 32 down through 37, finally, God shows up and he speaks. When God shows up in chapter 38, it's nothing like Job expected. Job had a lot to say before God showed up, 30 chapters worth. But in a moment, he lost his voice and all of his desire to say before God, he doesn't want any parts of what God has to say. God blitzes Job with question after question. He talks about his mighty power and the fact that in the grand scheme of things, he holds the whole, including 
Job's life. He rebukes the friends because they didn't do right by Job. Neither did they do right by him. And Job's blessings are restored to the second power. In the last verse in the book, Job 42, 17 says that Job died as a good man, an old man and full of days. There's no other book in the Bible like the book of Job. You read the book and no matter how many times you read it, you say, well, this is an interesting book. And yet there are questions. What is Satan doing in the presence of God in chapter one? And why does God offer up Job to begin with in Job chapter one and verse eight? After all, Satan didn't ask for Job. God said, I've got a servant and you can test him and he'll pass with flying colors. Why doesn't God show up and tell Job about Job chapter one and chapter two? He never mentions it. So far as we know, Job never learns why he found himself in the situation in which he was in. What happens to the devil after chapter two? There's no more mention of Satan. And why does God ask Job all of those questions that he does? Does that help Job or does that minimize Job? We have questions. And while the book of Job is filled with questions, it's also filled with answers. Answers about the kind of God that we serve. Answers about human hardship and all the big answer about what we need called the book of Job and I've got no problem with that so long as we appreciate that this book teaches us as much about God as it does about Job we talk about the patience of Job but when you read the 42 chapters it's also about the steadfastness and patience of God with Job we need to appreciate that as we study and as we read it and so tonight what I want us to do is to look at the book but not merely to look at the man Job I think there's some profit in doing that but I want to see what does the book of Job teach us about God? What do we learn about God after having read the, these 42 chapters that will help us to better serve him? Because in the end, we want to be better servants as we look at this faithful man named Job. We may never be in his shoes. We may never know exactly suffering in the same way that he did. But we can all be better as we examine his life together. Tonight, what I want us to do is look at six things that we learn about God from the book of Job. And then the lesson will be yours. Number one, the book of Job teaches that God rules over our adversary. Now, most Bible students, you knew this already because the Bible begins with saying in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, God was in the beginning and he was the only one there. In fact, you don't get out of the book of Genesis until you learn God's creation was very good. Genesis 131. And after Adam and Eve give in to the serpent's temptation, God promises that in the distant future, or at some point, he's going to crush the serpent. Genesis chapter three and verse 15. And yet when you read the book of Job, one of the impressive things we learn is that God is in total control and he rules over our adversary, which is the devil. Turn your Bible to Job chapter one and notice how this is shown to us in Job and what it teaches us about God's sovereign rule over the enemy. In Job chapter one, the adversary, the Satan, the devil, he comes into the presence of God in verse six. And God says, where have you been? And he says, I've been going throughout the earth to and fro, walking up and down in it. And God says in verse eight, have you considered my servant Job? And he offers Job up. And he says, OK, Job doesn't serve you because he wants to. Verse nine, does God does Job serve God for nothing? You've set a hedge around him. You've blessed all that he has, but take it from him and he'll curse you to your face. God removes it at his own will and Job doesn't curse him. You fast forward to chapter two and this happens again in verse three. He says there's nobody else like him. Job's an upright man who does right. Job two and verse four. Yes. But skin for skin, Job will give anything if you take his life. God says in verse six and verse seven of chapter two, OK, you can test him, but don't touch his life. The book of Job teaches us that in the end, the one who is truly in control, who reigns over our adversary is the God of heaven. 
The devil is not an omnipotent, powerful, spiritual being who's on the same level with God, who can do some of the very same things. The book of Job says that's not true. He is our foe. He is our enemy, but he is kept in check by God Almighty. He begs. God gives him the opportunity, but God sets the parameters on what he's able to do. Listen to the rest of Scripture as it teaches us that the devil is not all powerful. He's not in total control, but he does what he does by God's permission. He can be resisted. James four, seven and eight. James says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. First Peter five, eight and nine says, yes, your adversary is the devil. He's a roaring lion. He walks about seeking whom he may devour. But then in verse nine, Peter says, who you resist steadfast in your faith. He's not so smart that we can't figure out what he does. Second Corinthians two and verse 11 says he doesn't need to gain the advantage over us because we are not ignorant of his devices. He doesn't know everything. He's not all powerful. The only person that's all powerful is God. In fact, the devil's not omnipresent. Sometimes people throughout the whole world say, well, the devil's tempting me and the devil's making me do this. And his influence is spread abroad. And we don't deny that. But the devil's not in every place, not himself doing that. He's not physically tempting people here tonight. And also in China, that couldn't be when God says, where have you been? What does he say in verse seven? I've been going up and down through the earth and to and fro in it. When he was up, he wasn't down. When he was two, he wasn't fro. He's not everywhere. He's not God. He doesn't know everything. What did he say about Job? He said, if you take Job's stuff, he'll curse you. He was wrong. He said, if you hurt Job's flesh, he'll deny you. And he was wrong about that. He doesn't know everything. He's limited. He's not divine. He does not possess the same power as God. And we as the people of God, we can withstand him. The Bible says that God ultimately rules over our adversary. It's impressive. You read about Job's suffering and it's intense. It's terrible. But two things stand out. The first thing is this. What does God say in Job chapter one after the devil says, does God, does Job fear God for nothing? God says you can touch Job, but don't take his what? Don't take his life. The first thing it says is if the devil could have done more, he would have. He would have. God said in the second place, though, God says he won't let him. Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Luke 22, 31 through 32. If the devil could have done more, he would have. Job had it rough, but the devil wanted more. God said, you can go that far and no further. God wouldn't let him go further because God's the one that's in control. You know, police officers, they have power. But they only have power within their jurisdiction. There are four exceptions to a police officer operating outside of his or her jurisdiction within their jurisdiction. They can give tickets. They can arrest. But outside of their jurisdiction, they'd have to have four unique circumstances. They would have to have already been chasing somebody in their jurisdiction out of it in order to exercise their authority. They would have to be acting as a citizen in the second place. And maybe they can make a citizen's arrest. They'd be allowed to do that. In the third place, they could operate outside of their authority if they had a relationship with the other agency and they said, hey, we work together. And when people cross over, you can arrest them and do these things or fourth, if and only if they see someone committing a felony. Now, I'm not telling you to speed when you see a cop outside of his jurisdiction because he can't pull you over. But I'm just saying they're limited. They've got power, but only to be exercised within a certain parameter, a certain field. A cop couldn't come from New York and write parking tickets in Kentucky. A cop couldn't come from Florida and go to California and say he's going to pull people over and give them speeding tickets. They operate within their jurisdiction. And the devil has power, but he 
doesn't operate except in God's permitted will and within his jurisdiction. And God determines where and what that is. The book of Job says, yes, the devil tempts. Yes, the devil torments. But he only goes where God lets him. He's on a leash and God has him there and he can't move otherwise. Revelation 12 and verse 12 says he knows that he has a short time. He's not just wreaking havoc and doing whatever he wills. In the end, the Bible says, you know why the devil has so much influence? He says, if this first point is true, then why is there so much sin and evil in the world where his influence is spread everywhere? That's true. But it's also true that the power that the devil has over us and exercises the most is the power we let him exercise. Places like Ephesians 4:27, do not give place to the devil. He takes us captive at his will. Second Timothy two and verse 26. What we allow, he does. But he's not the most powerful being in the world. God reigns and rules over him. The book of Job teaches us that Satan must raise his hand and ask God's permission and never moves out of his assigned seat unless God allows him to. And God only permits him to do so much. Romans 16 and verse 20, Paul wrote, God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. When you open up the Bible to the book of Job, one of the things it teaches us about God is that he's the one that's in control of our adversary. Now, here's number two. The book of Job teaches us that God believes in his people. God offers up Job for reasons I really don't understand. But he says about Job, there's nobody like Job, an upright man who fears God and who Turns away from evil. He says that twice about Job, that Job is this righteous and upright and good person. But here's the question. As you read the book of Job, you've got to be thinking as you go through these 42 chapters. Why would God offer up Job? Furthermore, how does God know for certain that Job will not fail him and in turn make a fool out of him and make him out to be a liar? How can he be certain? Well, the first answer would obviously be God's omniscient. God knows everything. That's a part of it, but not the whole. The reason why God knows for certain, without a doubt, that Job will not fail him under the most intense persecution anybody's ever experienced outside of Jesus Christ is that he really and truly believes in Job. And here's what we learn about God as we read the book of Job. He believes in his people. That means he believes in you. Somebody says, well, not so fast, Hiram. Wait a minute. I get that he believes in Job and I appreciate that because the Bible says that explicitly that he believed in Job and he had confidence in what Job was able to do. But it's not responsible to take promises and passages that apply specifically to Job and just apply them across the board. Everybody's not Job. And I would agree with you. And I would even say that this point is only true about Job in a specific sense if that's all the Bible said about this. But what if the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testament, bears this out, that God has strong confidence? confidence in his people's ability to do the right thing. He wants us to. And he believes that we can. Genesis 18 and verse 19, God says about Abraham, oh, I know Abraham, that he'll command his household and his children after me. God says, Abraham, I believe in you. Moses said, I'm not eloquent of speech. I can't do this. Yes, you can. Exodus 4, 10 through 12. You will march into Egypt and up in Pharaoh and the entire Egyptian dynasty. Jeremiah says, I'm a youth. I can't speak. God says, I'll be with your mouth. You will be a prophet to the nations and you'll pluck up and pull down. You'll build and you'll destroy. Jeremiah 1, 6 through 12. Paul, you're a chosen vessel unto me. For kings and princes and before the Gentiles, you've testified about me in Jerusalem. You're going to do the same thing in Rome. Acts 23 and verse 11. God says to the seven churches in Asia, there are many things. They need to straighten out. But God tells them, Jesus says, you repent and I'll forgive you. He believes that they would. Peter denied Jesus the night when Jesus needed him most. Jesus says, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I 
wait for you. And then he looks toward the distant future and he sees Peter, though Peter would fall. He sees him on his feet and he says, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. How does he know that Peter would ultimately repent and then be converted so that he could strengthen others? The only answer is Jesus believed in him. He believed that Peter would not be judged by his worst moment and that Peter's life would ultimately be changed and change the lives of others. The Bible says, based on the book of Job, we learn God believes in his people. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the need to believe in God, and I think that's great. People say they don't believe in God, and we walk them through the apologetic ABCs. There's design in the universe. Just go look at the stars, the sun, the moon. Cause and effect and creation, and so there has to be a creator. Hebrews 3 and verse 4. Universal morality. Everybody understands these universal rights and wrongs. And we say that's belief. You should believe in God based on those grand realities. And that's true. But we should also appreciate the fact that God believes in us. We need to believe in God, but we also need to see that God believes in you. God believes we can do the things that he commands. He has confidence in us and he wants us to do the right thing. And so he cheers us on. One way to say this, sometimes people say God was proud of Job. And I'm fine with that. I've said that I'm good with that terminology. But another way to view this is God was completely satisfied with Job. He looked at Job's life and he says, this is a picture of faithfulness and I'm pleased with it and I'm happy. Tom Brady and heralded by most most people with good sense as the greatest quarterback of all time. Seven Super Bowls. In line for possibly an eighth, but what most people don't know is when he came out of the University of Michigan, there was really nobody that had him on the draft board as even being in the top of anything. He didn't go in the first round when he was drafted. He didn't go in the second round. He went in the sixth round. He was the 199th pick. Six quarterbacks were taken before Tom Brady. 31 teams passed on him. The Patriots, I don't know if they saw all of the glory and good that would come to their dynasty as a result of drafting him, but they saw something in him that the other teams didn't. They saw a possibility of what he could do and what he could become, and they took a chance on him. And they were right. Those six quarterbacks that were drafted before him, all of their careers have long since been done. None of them came even close to doing some of the things that he did. Thirty-one teams didn't believe in him, but one did. And in this life, it doesn't matter who counts you out as long as God counts you in. The book of Job says God believes in his people away with the idea of I can't do that. I'm not smart enough to do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. You couldn't if it was all up to you. The Bible says it's not. Ezra chapter 10 and verse 4, the people come home from captivity and they need to straighten out some things. And Ezra says, be strong and do it because you can. I'd have been thinking, there's no way that I can endure this. There's no way I can hold up to it. And the only voice that mattered, the headphones of his heartbeat, he had to have the loudest voice be God's that says, Job, yes, you can. Yes, you can overcome. Job, you can do this. You can be victorious. You can triumph even in the ash heap. God believed in him. And we won't be the people that God really wants us to be until we appreciate this reality is true for us as well. God believes in his people. The book of Job teaches us that he does. He puts his confidence in us. We're his bragging rights in the heavenly arena. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 says the manifold wisdom of God is displayed in the church. When we are the people that we should be, God is pleased and God believes that we can. Here's number three. The book of Job teaches us that God does not have to explain himself. You start reading the book and you are, like, oh, you know, Job and his friends, they've got a lot of questions. They want to know why things are happening to Job the way that they are. And if I were in Job's shoes and if you were in Job's shoes, you would want the same. thing. 
You'd want to know why all 10 of my children in one day, why all of my property, why all of these boils? Job had questions. But God doesn't have to explain himself to anybody. When you read the book of Job, one of the things that we learn about God is that God invites our questions. He welcomes those things. But God is in no way obligated to tell us his every move. I guess we've been infected with this since the Garden of Eden. You remember Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17? God says of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's in the midst of the garden, you shall not eat of it. For in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. But when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took and ate and gave to her husband and he ate. And from that moment on, they thought that they would be like God. And from that moment on, humanity as a whole, one by one, have all followed in their footsteps. And this idea of wanting to be like God sometimes have put ourselves in such a position that we think we get to scrutinize, to interrogate and to interview the king of kings and Lord of lords. And the book of Job says you don't get to do that and neither do I. Now, this point should not be taken to mean that it's wrong to ask questions. We should. The book of Psalms and even parts of the book of Job show us that this is right and this is healthy. But what it does mean is this. If God in his divine prerogative decides not to give us any of those answers, it must be well with our souls because God doesn't have to. He doesn't have to explain himself to us. He doesn't have to tell us everything that he wants to do. If God told us every move that he made, he'd never make any. He'd be busy lining up the billions of people and explaining to them every single thing that happens in their life and all of his heavenly doings. And God's just not going to do that. When you turn your Bible to Job chapter 38 and God finally responds in that whirlwind and he appears to Job, Job 38 and verse two, he says to Job, who is this that darkens counsel and utters words without knowledge? Gird up yourself like a man and you answer me. God won't be interviewed by us, but he'll interview us about things he wants to know from us. God doesn't have to explain himself. I like you have read the book of Job. And when I get to about chapter 37, I'm feeling for Job. I feel bad for him, don't you? And I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm just hoping, God, just tell him how much you love him. Tell him how much you care about him. Tell him about the dialogue in chapters one and two of Satan. And God doesn't do those things. And as much as I wish that he would have, I know my feelings in that moment are the wrong feelings to have. That's not the right response. I know that for at least two reasons. Number one, Job eventually admits that that wasn't right. He repents at the end of the book, Job 42 and verse six. He says, I've spoken things that I didn't know about. In Job chapter 40, verses three through five, he says, OK, I said I want to meet with you. I really don't. I said I want to talk to you about some things. I put my hand over my mouth. I've got nothing to say. You are far more glorious and marvelous than I ever dreamed. But here's the second reason I know that reaction is not the right one. It's not the right reaction because it's not what God did. If it was the right thing to do, that's what God would have done. If that's what Job needed, that's what God would have gave him. God did not give him that because that's not what Job needed. As much as I sympathize with this man and his great hour of suffering, the book of Job teaches me God does not have to explain himself. And in the end, Job got something far better than his questions answered. He got God and that was enough. He said, I've heard of you, but now I see you and that's enough for me. And until that's enough for us, nothing else will ever be. God didn't have to explain himself. Miller says, if we knew what God knew, we would ask for exactly what God gives. But we don't. If we knew what God knew, we would ask for exactly what God doles out in his eternal wisdom and knowledge toward us. God can't tell us everything. Sometimes we're not ready for it. Jesus spent three years with the disciples. And you remember what he told them near the end of his ministry? He says, I've got many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. John 16 and verse 12. Paul 
went up in a heavenly vision of some sort in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4. And he said, I saw things in heaven that were too lawful to utter. There are some things we just can't know right now. His understanding is infinite. He does great things we can't comprehend. Job 37 and verse 5. And he doesn't have to tell us everything. There's a humility about serving God, which appreciates that God knows more than me. And whatever God chooses to disclose, that's fine. But whatever God chooses, to I submit to that. And the book of Job helps us to see he doesn't have to explain himself. God's wisdom and his knowledge is far beyond the human's ability to comprehend. God basically says to Job in Job chapter 40 and verse 8, will you put me in the wrong so that you may be in the right? In Job 41 and in verse 11, he says to Job, who have, I, who have who's ever loaned anything to me that I need to pay them back? Everything under the heavens is mine. And I don't owe you an explanation. Here's number four. Job teaches that God has amazing power. The book of Genesis says that God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. You keep reading in places like in the Psalms and in the prophets. They tell us that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He brings them out and calls them all by number, Isaiah says. But when you get to the book of Job, you find out God's not just the creator, but God has style. God puts detail and intricacy into what he's made. God beautifies the creation. And the book of Job teaches us about God's amazing power. Turn your Bible to Job chapter 42 and appreciate what Job learned about the mighty power of God when God shows up. In Job 42 and verse 2, he says, you're in control and nothing can stop you from doing what you will. Job says, God, you're in complete control. In verse three, Job says, I've spoken things that were too wonderful for me. Job had a lot of things to say, but he realizes now I wasn't in a position to say the things I said. In verse four, he quotes something that God said earlier to him in his speech. Answer me. Stand up. I'm going to ask you a question and you answer me. In verse five, he says, I've gone beyond my ability. And then in verse six, he repented in dust and ashes because he realized God's power was too amazing. Job had a lot of questions for God. But when God shows up, depending on how you count them, God asked Job somewhere between 60 to 77 questions of which Job never even begins to answer the first one. And we might think about Job. You know, Job thinks he knows a lot. Job and his friends, they're in this little Bible study and they're talking about God. They've got a lot of questions. They've got a lot of ideas. But when God shows up, he puts Job, he takes Job to school and leaves him in theological preschool. Job doesn't have any more questions when God shows up. He never starts to answer the first one. And before we laugh and chuckle, if we were in the same situation, we find ourselves in a similar circumstance. Consider these questions and see which ones we can answer. He says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where was Job? He wasn't there. He says, who gave the sea its boundaries? Have you ever gone out to the ocean? You go out to the beach. If you put your hands out there and try to stop the waves, what's going to happen? The waves going to smack you. Right. God's the only one that puts the waves in time out and says, OK, here, no further. Jesus did that in Mark chapter four. Job's in no position to do that. Did you command the morning and cause the dawn to know his place? Job 38 and verse 12. Do you know where light came from and how it got there? He says, of course you do, Job, because you were there. Does the rain have a father? Mark Twain says we talk a lot about the weather, but we can't do anything about it. Can you control the constellation? But that's not all. Turn your Bible to Job chapter 38 and look down at verse 39. He continues with these questions that he has for Job that Job can't answer. In Job 38 and verse 39, he, bas he says, Job, can you fetch lunch for the lion? Do you go and get the lion his dinner? In Job 39 and verse 1, he says, when the mountain lions are ready to give birth, do they let you know about that? 
In Job 39 and verse five, he says, now, who lets the wild donkey go free? And then in verse nine, he says, does the wild ox serve you? Job 39 and verse 19. Do you give the horse his power? And of course, in verse 26 of chapter 39, the hawks soar based on your understanding. Can you, Job, look on everybody that's arrogant, everybody that's proud and bring him low? Job chapter 40 and verse 12. Job, can you put everybody in their place? I know you can. In chapter 40, verse 15 down through 24, he says, surely you can control the behemoth. And then in chapter 41, 1 through 11, do you drag the Leviathan like a dog on the leash? God's power is amazing. He blitzes Job with these questions. And whether we know it or not, Job actually knows the answer to every one of them. What is the answer to these questions? I was not there. Only you. I don't know. Only you know. You are amazing. No wonder, Job says in Job 42 and verse 6, I repent in dust and ashes. I've spoken things that are too wonderful for me. The book of Job says God's power is beyond what we can comprehend. I don't know how long you've been a Christian, but I hope you're still in awe of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. I hope nature still impresses you that he hung the stars and they actually stay in their place. I know we sing about it so often, but I hope the empty tomb still blows you away. He's declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans one and verse four. Only God can do that. People normally stay dead when they die. But God decided to get up. I hope we're still amazed by all that he does, because the book of Job, he gives Job just a crumb of what he's able to do. This is merely just a fraction of the questions that he poses to Job. And even then we're spellbound by what he's able to do. We live in a world that prizes power and intellect and intelligence. And here are some of the best that our world has to offer. Elon Musk with his two hundred and twenty eight billion dollars. You think about this man, Terrence Tao. He's a genius. He's a mathematician. He scored a seven hundred and sixty on the math SAT when he was eight. Mr. Staltman's the strongest man in the world. He can deadlift. John Staltman can deadlift about 900 pounds or more. And then the ruler of China is supposedly by Forbes said to be the most powerful man or at least the most influential in the world. And you take all of these men and the book of Job says, oh, God's more amazing than them. He wouldn't attend their classes. He would not go to their seminars. He would not ask them for advice. They wouldn't be his spotter in the gym. His power is amazing. God truly is in a class all his own. Nobody walks in his shoes because nobody wears his size. He walks Job through this intercourse. He takes Job on this tour and he says, Job, look at all of the things that I control. This isn't to make Job ashamed. God's not even angry with Job. But essentially, he says, Job, look at all of the things that I control. Don't you think I've got your life and I've got you. If this God of the Bible, this Job, the God of the book of Job is our God. What do we really have to worry about? If that God who hushes the sea, who fetches food for the lions, who causes the hawks to soar, if he is our God and if he says, I look down into the world and I'm concerned about you and I believe in you, that'll change. If we really believe that tonight, what would change in our lives? If we really believed that this God with this amazing power that the Bible says that same power works in us, Ephesians 3:20, what would change in our lives? The book of Job says God's power is amazing. And he uses it for our good. Now, here's number five. God listens to what we say about him. Job and his friends say a lot of things about God. If you get to the end, go to Job 42 and notice verse seven. This is after Job repents. God calls Eliphaz and he says, my anger burns against you and your two friends. 
because you have not spoken what was right concerning me as my servant Job has. Go ahead and take you these seven bullocks and offer them. Bring them up to Job and Job will pray for you. And I'll hear and I'll turn away from my fury because you have not spoken what is right concerning me like my servant Job has. The fifth thing tonight, the book of Job teaches us that God listens to what we say about him and he cares about it. The friends in Job are on a 30 chapter Bible study going back and forth, trading verses and thoughts and ideas. And then finally, God shows up and he says, you all got it wrong. Job spoke what was right. Now, that statement at the end of verse seven, Job spoke what was right concerning me. is sort of a problem statement. It's a troublesome statement, at least to some. How did Job speak what was right? Job says some things in this book that were not right. Like God hated him in chapter 16 and verse nine, like God wants to kill him in chapter 30 and verse 33. I would argue that this idea that Job spoke what was right concerning me essentially applies to what Job said when God showed up. His repentance, the friends never do. Job had no sin of which to repent that brought on his trouble. But as he speaks throughout the book, he does get some things wrong about God and God heard him. And when God showed up, Job repented. The friends never did. And God says, you've got to fix this. The book of Job says God listens to what people say about him. And that makes what we do every first day of the week and in our daily lives all the more important. The Bible says don't add to the word of God. Don't take away when you tell somebody if you do X, you'll lose your soul. You'll go to hell. We had better make sure the Bible actually says that. When you tell somebody, well, God doesn't really care. I don't think that's a bad idea. I mean, I think God will be okay with that. We had better make sure we can put our finger on a passage and give them permission from God to do that because God listens closely to what people say about him and he holds us accountable for it. The book of Job says he's perked up. He's listening. They're trading ideas and thoughts back and forth. Imagine the look on their faces when finally the theophany begins and the whirlwind starts and God shows up. God listens. And God cares. What does that mean? It means in a world in which we can trade thoughts and ideas, we need to do what first Peter says. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Make sure we actually know what the Bible says. This shouldn't scare us into silence to the point we never say anything about God. But what we say, we need to be sure that it's accurate and that it's actually from God when we say that it is because he's listening. It means God's not this intellectual project. Where we just sometimes want to play the devil's advocate and bounce ideas back and forth. And God's this trivial individual where we just kind of bounce our ideas back and forth. God's not some toy that we play with. We don't just say, well, I want to play the devil's advocate. In so doing, we might just end up like the devil. We need to be careful. We need to think through it because he listens. Peter says here, three, three great guys. Let's make three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. God heard him. God interceded and said, oh, no, this is my beloved son and whom I'm well pleased. Can you imagine Peter looking up and saying, how did you hear that? He hears everything. He was listening and he listens to us. What does he hear you say about him? He hears you take his name in vain. Exodus 20 and verse seven. He hears us say, that's really no big deal. First Kings 13 and verse 18, the older prophet, the false prophet said to the younger prophet, God spoke to me, too. No worries. Don't worry about that. He hears us when we say things like God is awesome. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. Hopefully he hears us begging his pardon and confessing our shortcomings because we do sin and make mistakes. First John chapter one and verse nine. But he's listening to us and it makes a difference what we say. Because God pays attention. He shows up to the friends and he says, you didn't say the right stuff. You didn't say the right thing. And my anger is kindled. People throw God's name around. They say things about God. I don't think this is a big deal. I don't really think this part of the Bible is that important. 
think this section matters. And God hears every single word of it. At least three times in Scripture, Deuteronomy four and verse two, Proverbs 30 and verse six and Revelation 22, 18 and 19. The Bible charges and commands us. Don't add to the word. Don't take away from it. And at least part of the is God hears it and he will punish severely. The last thing we learn about God from the book of Job is that God will bless our latter days. And this is probably my favorite part of what we learn about God in the book of Job, and that is. In the end, we sometimes say Job got his stuff back, but that's not what the writer of the book of Job says. The writer of the book of Job doesn't just say Job got his stuff back. Job 42 and verse 12 says God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. Those 7000 camels that he had turned into 14. Those 3000 sheep turned into 6000. The 500 oxen, they turned into a thousand. He got the seven sons and three daughters again. But God blessed his life in way more than his beginning. If Job is blessed at the beginning of the book, by the end, it's doubled. God far out, out exceeds what Job had initially. And he blesses Job in a mighty way. And that is true for all of God's people, because that's the kind of God he is. The Bible is often pointing us on a trajectory that says the best is yet to come. In the days of Haggai, when the people came back from captivity, he said, I appreciate this temple you've made, but the temple that's coming, the glory of that latter house, it'll be better than this one. Haggai chapter two and verse. Nine. Paul says, I'm telling you that the sufferings of this current time are not worth comparing the glory with the glory that will be revealed. Romans eight and verse 18. Our light affliction, which is momentary, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Second Corinthians four and verse 17 God will bless, just like he did with Job, the Christian's latter end more than his beginning, because that's the kind of God that we serve. That means we'll be happy in the end that we threw our lot in with the Lord. You have never sung like you're going to sing over there. You've never smiled as brightly as you will smile when you get over there. You've known some happy days and had some great experiences, but none like you'll have when we finally get over there. He will bless our latter end more than our beginning. We'll say like the MC at the wedding feast in John 2. Most people bring out the good to begin with, but you've kept back the good until now. When we get to heaven, we'll say, God, you did some amazing things in this life. My life was blessed with food and with family and with experiences, but you have kept back the very best until now. I wish somebody would have told me that it was going to be like this. I would have prayed harder. I would have ran faster in your service. I would have given you more than I even did. And he's going to bless our latter end more than our beginning. And the Bible encourage us in light of that. You be steadfast. You be unmoved. You abound in the work of the Lord because what God has planned for you, it far out exceeds anything you could even imagine. If you find yourself in a job like circumstance, if you're struggling in your faith, the reality is Christian. This world is as bad as it'll ever get for you. This is Satan's hardest punch. And based on what we find in Scripture, you can take it. If you are not a Christian. And life's great for you. It's as good as it'll ever be. If you're not a Christian and you're suffering. This is as light as your affliction will ever be. Because the Bible says the worst for the non-Christian is yet to come. But for those in Christ, he will bless our latter end far more than our beginning here. There is no book in the Bible like the book of Job. A unique man in unique circumstances. But it's more than that. The book of Job says that there's an amazing God behind everything. He rules over our adversary. He's in total, complete control. 
He has confidence in his people to withstand whatever the adversary throws against us. His power is amazing. He listens to what we say about him and he has blessings that he's given us now. But if you're a Christian, the best is yet to come. And in the end, all of this is true based on the one great Job of the Bible, which is Jesus Christ. Job suffered, but Jesus did more. He was tempted by Satan and he passed with flying colors. People said about him, just like they said about Job, you're a sinner. If you weren't, you wouldn't be in this situation. Come down and save yourself. When he died, there weren't two funerals. There was just one, his own, and he chose it willingly. He never complained like Job did, never asked any questions, just simply submitted himself to the will of God. And God, just like with Job, blessed his latter end more than his beginning. He rose from the grave and said, now all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. And everybody who comes to me gets to share in the same. And maybe tonight you need to do that. Maybe you need to turn to the amazing God of Job, the same God we worship and sing praises to tonight. We'd be happy to witness that, be happy to assist you in doing that and help you turn to God in faith and in obedience to his gospel. We'd be happy to assist. If you need the prayers of the church tonight, we'd be happy to pray with you and pray on your behalf. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.